Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, no relationship to Kim Jong-un. I'm a left-wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. What a great show we have today. First, we're going to talk to Ian Dunn, who, of course, is our England correspondent or uh, something, but you may know him as the host of Oh God, What Now? and the Origin Story podcast, as well as being the author of How to Be a Liberal. He's going to talk to us about the Queen's death, as well as their new prime minister, Liz Truss. Then we do an excellent interview with one of my favorite authors, Douglas Rushkoff, who has a new book called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. And he's going to talk to us all about that and a whole lot of other mind-blowing stuff. But first, let's have some fun. Andy Levy! Molly Jongfast. The queen is dead. The queen is dead, long live the king. Yeah. Our British friends are super upset. Americans, as always, have not a ton of history with the queen. But she was the queen for a long time. Yeah, I have no strong opinion about the queen. I know that a lot of British people do, and it is a uh, complete mystery to me. But I understand that it's, you know, different culture. We're going to have Ian on later on the show, and he's going to explain to us about just about how she was sort of an important cultural mascot in a way that none of us Americans can understand in any way. Right. I mean, look, we have Beyonce. Exactly. (laughs) Right. You know, obviously this will be many, 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 many years from now, but this country is going to be torn apart when our queen dies. I guess we have to understand what they're going through. And there is this super interesting question of whether, I guess, Charles will be king and that he will be the sort of first divorced king who murdered his first wife. I mean, sorry, just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Allegedly. Just kidding. Allegedly. Who allegedly <laughs> murdered his first wife. No. Uh, That's not even true that he's the no. first. <laughs> so. No, right, exactly. There'll be a, a new king and he will be married to his second wife. And so Britain will be modern in its own strange. Oh, can we stop talking about this now, please? <laughs> I just want to point out, though, that there's a... Dear God. There's a rhyme about Henry VIII. Does it sound like I have a gun to my head? <laughs> because I do have a gun to my head. No, I, I do I do, I do, do want to just point this out because there is a, there is a rhyme that is very well known in, in Great Britain about Henry VIII's wives as a way to remember how they died. And the rhyme is... Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. That's his six wives. She was born in 1926, which is a very long time ago, so. Yes, I'm just saying that King Henry divorced twice and had two wives beheaded, so. Yeah, we should stop talking about this because it's so uninteresting. (laughs) The good news is that neither of us are dead, and so we can continue with the podcast, and... That means talking about a lot, the all the interesting stuff. Actually, talking about, you know what the, the most fun story today is? A story that I think that we can agree is really fun. Rick Scott, you may know him as the president from Mars Attacks. <laughs> Not the president, the alien. The alien from Mars Attacks. The president is Jack Nicholson. The alien is Rick Scott. He is um, the head of the Republican Senate money stealing from Rube's campaign. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a it's a tough acronym. Yes, and uh it's a job that no one wants, but Rick took it because besides being an alien, 
Rick has some presidential ambitions, which is fun because he's a terrible politician. So him having presidential ambitions is hilarious because all of his ideas are incredibly unappealing, even to the hardest hardliner. So he and Mitch McConnell are in a kind of death match because, now, I don't know if you know this, but Rick Scott is most famous for cashing in right before his company had to pay $1.7 billion for Medicare malfeasance, right? Yes. God, he's 70 years old. So he's a man who maybe you don't want to give him some money. Well, it turns out when he's the chair of whatever that is, the Republican take your money away committee, he (laughs) may have spent some of the money or all of the money, and now they need more money. But the problem is a lot of that money is going to one Donald J. Trump, and he's using it for lawyers. Yes. It's the, I believe the National Republican Senatorial Committee is the name of the, is the actual name of the committee for people keeping score at home. NRSCC. Yes. Just one C though, I think. Committee chairman. Oh, NRSC. Yes. Yes. Good point. So they took in like a ton of money, like close to $200 million, $180 million, something like that. Uh, They are down to $23 million on hand. And as the New York Times put it, now top Republicans are beginning to ask, where did all the money go? Yeah, well. And, well, you hired a guy, again, as as Molly, as you pointed out, who is best known for- Crimes. Medicare fraud. Yeah. Which I understand that in today's Republican Party- that is what they look for in leaders, but except they're not supposed to do it to themselves. You know, they're only supposed to steal the money and defraud voters and other people like that, not their own party. Right. And Rick Scott, as the kids say, didn't get the memo. He didn't understand the assignment, Molly. Well, who, we don't know if he stole it or if he just mismanaged it. Yeah, and probably he just mismanaged it. I mean, who cares? I mean, worse things have happened right. to better people than the Republican Party getting grifted by itself. It's a sort of beautiful Mobius strip. Oh, no, it, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And this is of a piece with a lot of things that we've talked about in the past 15, 16 years that we've been doing this podcast. And it's that we are <laughs> incredibly- it's been 50 years. I'm pretty sure 50 <laughs> We are years. incredibly lucky that so many of these Republicans are are wildly incompetent. Yeah. Because the da- they've done, I mean- They've done incalculable damage to this country, even with being incompetent. But the damage that they would have done if they had been even remotely competent is, is, I can't even, like, it's, I don't like to imagine it. Yes, I think that's a good point. Yeah, we would not be allowed to record this podcast from from our camp. At Gitmo. They, well, the problem is the cell service. uh, No, it is, it's bad bad down there. Yeah, there's not a lot of towers. Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. So <laughs> there's some really great little details. The New York Times did a, a good piece on the uh, NRSC budget, and they, they spent $23 million on investments to find new donors, and those investments raised $6 million. So they <laughs> lost $17 million in trying to find new donors. So, and that's just obviously a drop in the bucket because they somehow went from 180 million to 23 million. And which you would say, well, okay, well, I guess they must have spent that on all the candidates, but apparently that's not the case. There is this, you know, where do it go? It's sort of like it's the old missing sock in the, in the dryer conundrum. Yeah, that's probably not what it is, but yes. <laughs> it's exactly no, what it I'm is. Gonna, that I'm is exactly what it is. I have relatives who work in finance and they talk like that all the time, Molly. Yeah, I don't know. It's, the, it's called the missing sock conundrum. Right. It's taught in business schools across the country. <laughs> yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But either way, the point is here that you got Rick Scott, who's at best incompetent and worse uh, a criminal. And you've got, you know, he's mismanaging the Republican Party's money. And we all hate to see it. And if hate is life. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say if hate is like something else, but you were just, no, yes, no, I get it. No, yes. if hate yes. is like, then we hate it. But I would like to say that Scott is fighting back. He wrote a scathing opinion piece in the Washington Examiner. You will remember the Washington Examiner is basically yet another one of those Republican websites. Uh, you know, he's not happy. He's going to fight, fight, fight. Uh, and, you know, I mean, okay. I think ultimately we're seeing Mitch McConnell, who is, is pretty smart, though quite evil, setting Rick Scott up for a huge fall. And I think that's where this goes. You know, if Republicans fail to capture the House or the Senate, certainly for the Senate, which looks like it's already inevitable, he'll be able to blame Rick Scott for it. Yeah. And one of the favorite games in Washington is obviously blaming someone else. Yes. The only problem with having Rick Scott as your sacrificial lamb is he has no, there's no wool. There is no wall. There's certainly not no wall. You're not going to get, you know, a nice rug out of out of sacrificing Rick Scott, who, by the way, I'm going to point out once again, is not the aliens in Mars Attacks. He's the observer from Fringe. Oh, yes. As our producer, Jesse Cannon, well knows because he has a tattoo of Rick Scott on his person. Why are you got to do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's so mean. Listen, listen yeah. I, just like the Observer, I had a premonition that he was going to be very important, so I got it done. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are really missing out on the real analysis here, though. He thought it was the National Rick Scott Committee, which is why he embezzled all the way Very good. Very good. Let's take that again, but with me <laughs> yeah. saying it. Okay, three, <laughs> two, one. So I know it's the National Republican Senatorial Committee, but I guess uh, he must have thought it was the National Rick Scott Committee. Uh, there we go. There uh, we go. A joke so good it has to be stolen. <laughs> Should we go back to talking about the Queen? <laughs> Absolutely not. I am impressed she had a lot of dogs. She did. She had a lot of corgis. Yeah. 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 Love a corgi. Love a corgi. You think she named them? Corgi the corgi. Bess. Yeah, Bess. Are they all, I'm sure they had fancy British names. There's a chart that's going viral today with all the names. Oh, really? Also, really, are we discussing this right now? <laughs> well, we had to go back. <laughs> it's a holiday week, Jesse. People are just back to work. Yeah. They're just back to school. They need some light entertainment and, you know, without any substance whatsoever. And we are here to provide that. <laughs> I heard Steve Bannon got arrested, guys. <laughs> yeah. This is the second time that Steve Bannon has gotten arrested. This time it's for money laundering. Wait, what is the, can you read out, can somebody read out all the crimes Steve Bannon got arrested for? Let's see, money laundering, conspiracy, scheming to defraud for his alleged role in We Build the Wall. I'm quoting here from a Politico article. Basically, Alvin Bragg has proven once again that as long as you're not the capo. Is this Alvin Bragg? It is. Oh, wow. Is. All right, good he surrendered to Alvin Bragg. Yeah, yeah. Alvin Bragg, who will, who will go after everyone but Trump. As long as you're not the capo, Alvin Bragg is on your ass. Yeah, as long as you're not Trump. But yeah, the, I, the thing about Bannon is, like, yes, obviously he's a grifter. And like most of the people these days on the right, the Charlie Kirks, the the Dave Rubens, whatever. hes They're all grifters. Bannon, I think, is a grifter who also happens to be a true believer. Like, he's both. Who knows? So I think that makes him a little more interesting I mean, in a way than I some of these people who just straight up don't believe what they're saying and are just in it for the money. I think, I mean, I'm just saying, I think Bannon is absolutely, he is like a, you know, white supremacist. A 22-page indictment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's just a straight-up fascist, but he's also a grifter. I mean, the thing I think about Bannon that's interesting is he's smart, which you cannot cannot be said about a lot of other members of MAG. Yeah. Like, he's actually very smart. I mean, he's—and he is ideologically quite racist. Letitia James— and Alvin Bragg are going to have a press conference. They're working on this together. The object of the conspiracy was to obscure the fact that contrary to We Build the Wall, Inks, by the way, We Build the Wall is all one word, representative about <laughs> its president and CEO, unindicted co-conspirator one, not taking a salary. Unindicted co-conspirator one was, in fact, receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in compensation from We Build the Wall, Inc., 
I feel like that's a trope you see a lot in Trump world. People saying they don't take a salary and then getting millions of dollars other ways. Yeah. And usually the other ways are from the money that they scammed out of the ordinary people they claim to care so much about. Yeah. It's weird how that happens over and over again. Coincidentally, seems like a trope. It seems a little bit like a trope. Yes. Months later, Bannon is quoted as saying at a fundraising event, remember, all the money you give goes to building the wall. Right. Except the money that went to him buying multiple shirts. I look forward to seeing him wearing two jumpsuits. One with the collar up and one with the collar down. (laughs) And again, this is this interesting thing where he has been pardoned, but you can't be pardoned if federal pardon does not work on state crimes. Right. I was going to say, you know, the interesting thing is that until the Trump administration, none of us ever had to learn that that was a thing. Right. No, no, (laughs) it's true. It's true. true. (laughs) Some of us sort of learned it during the Clinton era, but we all learned like what constitutes an impeachable offense. We've all (laughs) learned what pardons cover and what pardons don't cover. And it's amazing. The best thing about this Bannon story is he, I guess, gave some remarks as he was uh, led into to the building where, you know, after being arrested and no one could hear him because people were heckling and one woman was yelling, stop hurting America, you greasy grifter. Yeah, see, greasy I, I, grifter. It's, it's, it's the perfect term. It yeah. really is like the greasy, like that's his, mm-hmm. you know, like the Zodiac killer <laughs> and people like that. Like he's the greasy grifter. Put it on a shirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> put it on a shirt. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off of my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience. And it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries. And it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash The New Abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash the new abnormal. Ian Dunn is a columnist at the iNewspaper, 
host of Oh God, What Now? An Origin Story, and author of How to Be a Liberal. And I'd like to know, when we taped this, we didn't have total confirmation that the Queen had passed yet, so if you hear us referring to it ambiguously, that's because we wanted to wait till it was confirmed. Welcome back to the new abnormal, our British correspondent. Can we call you our British? You're our British correspondent. Congratulations, you've been promoted. That's very kind of you. I mean, you don't actually pay me any money, so... <laughs> yes! So, you know, really, the, the job title sounds fantastic, but I'm not sure what... <laughs> You're a contributor now okay. to this podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. What the fuck is going on over there? Well, quite a lot is, is happening at the same time. So we had a new prime minister. Uh, I don't even know what day that was now. Was that Tuesday? I think that was Tuesday. And now it's Thursday. And it's sort of gone into emotional lockdown. So you would be very hard pressed to be optimistic that the Queen's going to make it through because it, it's a very right. unusual set of events are taking place. We were watching the House of Commons. There was an announcement by the Prime Minister of her new energy plan. You could see one of her ministers pass her this note. Oh, the Prime Minister. To pass the Prime Minister a note. Yeah. And she read the note in the House of Commons. We obviously couldn't see the note, but instantly you could just tell that doesn't look normal. Right. And the leader of the opposition, the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, was then passed a note and he looked ashen and just instantly left the chamber along with his deputy. And that is absolutely not a normal thing to do in the middle of a prime minister's statement. So then it was pretty clear unusual things were happening. And then the statement came out from Buckingham Palace. Now, Buckingham Palace releasing a statement saying that... It's unusual, right? It's very unusual. Exactly. Like, as soon as that happens, you're like, the mere fact of this statement, even though some of the language is reassuring, she's comfortable, blah, blah, blah. The mere fact of the statement just sort of made you feel like, okay, here we are. And pretty quickly after that, the news channels here. So BBC One just switched to the news. And shortly after that, Hugh Edwards, who's probably sort of the most august, long-lasting newsreader, appeared in a black suit. And that was the moment for me where I was like, okay, so they've got Hugh Edwards with a black suit. And, and that tends to indicate that this isn't going to end well. And she's 96 years old, just for that. So she's not young. And then there's also this thing. I mean, I think that's an important detail. There's also this thing where the newscasters are wearing black ties. Will you explain that? There's a, an extraordinary degree of preparation for an event like right. this that has gone on for decades. I think they started prepping for this in the 1960s. There are whole alarm systems within the BBC and the Foreign Office that are designed specifically for dealing with this event. I think, I think it's called... Project London Bridge. London Bridge is falling, I think, is the code name for it. Yes, I read about it in The Guardian. It's very intricate, very, very detailed. Um, and, and, you know, about when do the trains move? I mean, down to the millisecond of, like, when the funeral procession would, would reach Westminster and when Big Ben would sound. And, and that includes the media. So the media... There's even a sort of a special light system that applies for commercial radio, you know, the stuff yeah. playing like 1980s pop hits, that then leads them to start playing completely different music. So suddenly they have to play very sad music. That'll go on for days. I think it was in 2011 that a guy from B BBC Radio 1, which is supposed to be like the, the young radio station, plays mostly pop music, says, you know, if, if you hear this kind of music on Radio 1, you should turn on the TV because something very bad has happened. It's usually it's going to be there's a war <laughs> yeah. or a major attack or the Queen is dead. And so it's very, very carefully coordinated. And as soon as you see that kind of clothing come out, that, that indicates that things are going in a particular direction. It's interesting to me what when I read this article about it, which is from 2017. So obviously this is pretty well known. There's a lot of this that goes on. Like they don't necessarily tell you the queen is dead when she dies. Well, you know what the thing is? We, we don't know how this works because... We've only ever had one queen. Right. I don't know anyone that remembers another queen. Right. Yeah, I mean, my dad is, you know, uh, I think 75, I think. I, I should really know his age, but apparently <laughs> you I don't. Um, so he's 75. I mean, my dad wouldn't know any other monarch. So we just don't have any ex experience of what this is like. I suppose to try and explain it, the way it feels right now is you can kind of feel the emotional wave building. And that is personal as well, by the way. Like, and, and that will apply to people who are Republicans here too. And you can see right. them even now expressing it on Twitter. Of, you know, loads of, half of my feed is people going, I, I don't care about the royal family. I'm not a royalist. So 
why am I crying? She's a larger cultural experience than just being the queen. Right. Well, she's all you know. It's very hard, right, talking to, to Americans about it because, uh, of course, that role for you guys is, is the president. But it's really not. It's really not, exactly, because it's, it's political, right? So it, you can't, you know, you will hate a bunch of them and maybe like another, you know, And but more importantly, they will go. You know, they'll go in either four or eight years. I mean, they, they won't be lasting for, for 70 or 80 or however long she's been there. It's just on a national emotional level, it's quite hard to even begin to comprehend what it will do to us. Like it's, it, and it's such a strange kind of facet of the human experience because it's not personal really. I mean, you feel it personally, but it's not like you've suffered a bereavement. It's about your sense of country and your sense of identity within the country and a mass feeling of that, of people feeling at the same time. And of course, in that taking place in a country that functionally is completely unable to talk about its emotions. And so all of that will be a very, it's going to be a very strange process. And today you kind of just get the sort of distant thunder of that emotional process. You can hear it, but obviously, it, you know, it hasn't hit yet. So let's talk about your new prime minister. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, I go to England for a quick trip. <laughs> What the hell is happening? <laughs> I do love to stick to this idea that you're somehow personally responsible for all of this, like some kind of kick sort of form of chaos. Yeah, a chaos agent. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be, but it just happens. <laughs> so, I mean, I told you last time, I think. <laughs> when we had dinner in July, yes. Yeah, and then the chaos began. So I, I, told, you, I told you guys last time, I think, about the cheese speech, the cheese and pork markets speech. Yes. Remind our listeners who are not as versed in British weirdness. So a, a few years ago, when she, when she was a cabinet secretary, she did a speech to the Conservative Party on how disgraceful it was that Britain imported so much of its cheese and on the, our aspirations in the Chinese pork market. And it was <laughs> one of the weirdest, most presentationally appalling and intellectually bereft speeches I've ever seen a British politician make. But you would think basing it on pork and cheese, it wouldn't be, but... You know, even the cheese thing is just extraordinary because it's just like, <laughs> how can you love Brexit so much that you now hate Brie? Like, how can you have become so broken psychologically that you reject French cheese? <laughs> <laughs> very good. It's better than cheddar. I mean, cheddar is frankly one of the most overrated cheeses on earth. That speech should have destroyed. Blasphemy. No, I mean it's true. It's true. We got to stay focused here, team. Okay, continue with the speech because we're getting very distracted on the types of cheeses. So, I mean, that speech would have ended anyone's political career in a functioning country. I mean, it was just, and I do, I strongly recommend that anyone who hasn't seen it watches it. Just, and you should watch the full version just to see. Just the way that she tries to replicate what he, what she thinks humans behave like. It, she is a deeply, <laughs> deeply broken personality. So she does this speech, and it should have ended her career. And now that woman, of all human beings in this country, and I still can't quite get my head around it, she's actually the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. She, that's that who the Prime Minister is right now. She is, as I said, presentationally utterly bereft. Intellectually... You're almost completely absent. I got told a story the other day by a civil servant who worked with her. And there's this sort of tactic that civil servants have where they just sort of pack the options with shit. So there's one thing that they want the minister to do. So they come up with about three other options, all of which are completely insane and no one would do. And that way they box the minister in and try to control them. They stopped doing it with Liz Trust because reliably she always picked the maddest fucking option. <laughs> That's very, very Trumpy, right? Right, exactly, yeah. Exactly. So the whole system for controlling MPs falls apart because she doesn't really function like a normal human being. And she is, again, now in charge of the entire country, extremely right-wing, I mean, quite deranged. So to give you an impression of the derangement, she was asked during an interview the other day, is the French president, Emmanuel Macron, friend or foe? I mean, also, stop for a minute, just... Consider what has happened to this country, that that is even a fucking question that people ask an incoming British prime minister. And she said, yet to be determined. She couldn't even answer. That's, that's how far she's gone. One of the greatest democracies on earth and one of Britain's closest allies. But because it's France, which obviously makes cheese that are somehow appallingly we buy, she has decided that he can't be trusted. He's not necessarily a friend of this country. When she was asked about Donald Trump, 
she changes her tone altogether. She's asked, you know, saying, has he broken the law, blah, blah, blah. She says, I can't possibly comment on someone who might be running to become the president of, a, of an ally country. So that gives you an indication of where she is politically. Oh, yeah, it's just, that's what she is. She's, but I should add, she's very boring to listen to. So it's hard to get too upset. She's saying all this dreadful shit. And obviously, like, your heart is upset by it. But actually, it's quite hard to stay awake. Her intonation, her choice of words, the content of what she says is so tiresome, so profoundly tedious, that in a way it sort of <laughs> mitigates against the emotional impact. So, so you would say she's like Boris without the brains? That's interesting. She's different. I think probably she does have core beliefs, Unlike Johnson, we, we, we've discussed this in the past, you know, the, the, what do you want them to have? Really bad beliefs that they genuinely hold or, or otherwise. I think she does genuinely hold her beliefs, which is just kind of boring 1980s sort of laissez-faire market knows best, you know, that's right wing reactionary sort of chat. That's basically what she thinks. I think she genuinely holds those views. So she's probably less vacuous than he is. She's infinitely less charismatic. I mean, there's that, you know, there's no two ways around it. Like, I mean, he, he, had a, right. he, he knew how to tap into the British susceptibility towards irony. And that was a, for, for the moment that it worked until people realized that they were the butt of the joke. That was a really powerful, that was a really powerful political mechanism. She doesn't have anything like that. I mean, charismatically, it's like watching something die. So there's that, that that's different as well. She's probably a, a better human being. I mean, it would be quite hard to find a worse one. I've got to say, weirdly enough, you know, today, when the news about the Queen came, I was just really grateful that Boris Johnson wasn't Prime Minister when that happened. Say more. Well, I just, you know, because he's such a cynical, manipulative clown that I just didn't want that to be the Prime Minister talking to the country at that period. It's sort of almost anyone else would be better than having him in that position. And therefore, it is better to have her in that position than it is him. He's only just gone like two or three days ago, so the timing kind of works. And the fact that I thought that, I'm kind of processing this as I'm talking, because also I think this might be the first time I've ever said anything nice about Liz Truss. The fact that I thought that indicates that I clearly do think that she's a better human being than Boris Johnson was. But then, you know, he was just yeah. fundamentally like a really quite an unpleasant human being once you got past the fake bonhomie. And on that basis, yeah, I mean, you, you know, so she is superior in that respect, I guess. I, I feel a bit sickened by the things that are coming out of my mouth, but... <laughs> Look, man, where does the UK go now? You have this incredible inflation problem. I'm thinking the number is 10.1%. But that seems like too high. But I think that's what it is. No, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and it's going to go up from there. We're, we're fucked. I mean, it's really, it's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> and what we're looking at is is catastrophic short and medium term decline, which is quite a thing to say for a country that's been in decline for nearly a century now. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I mean, we're we're in, we're in genuinely real trouble here. I mean, the, the kind of energy bills that we the people are talking about, you know, three and a half right. thousand a month, going up to five thousand a month. I mean, that's the kind of you know that's that's the shit that kills people. I mean, that that's where you can't feed, you can't feed your family, you know, or you have to decide to keep warm. So she had to step in and do something about it. She clearly still doesn't have a plan for how she's going to do that, which is a frankly unbelievable thing, given that this has been going on for about six months. But she clearly has no plan. That announcement that she made in the Commons today was basically to say, I promise I'll come up with a plan later and I'll give you some financial, you know, information. None of that matters now because of the Queen stuff. But nevertheless, she clearly doesn't have a plan. The NHS, the National Health Service, is in a state of complete disrepair. People dying, waiting for ambulances. People that have had strokes, waiting for over an hour for an ambulance, being held outside the hospital for hours, dying in that ambulance. People being kept in hallways for days on stretchers. It's in complete disrepair and it's not even winter yet. You see industrial disputes across the landscape. I mean, we're talking at the moment of like half public sector workers who are in some stage of an industrial dispute that could lead to strikes. And then you start looking at, you know, Scotland pushing very, very hard for another independence referendum. Liz Truss active in trying to stoke a, a trade war with Europe and trying to break international law over the Brexit deal that she did. You know, you look around, there is nothing that is working in this country, like absolutely nothing. It feels in a really advanced state of decline. And, and, and then again, I don't want to keep on coming back to the Queen, but it, 
it just feels almost like it's written for a BBC drama for that to be happening right now as this, this proper sense of national crisis and a prime minister in place who doesn't show any of the intellectual or moral capacity to deal with it. It's pretty fraught stuff at the moment. From what I'm reading, most people think she will not be able to survive this. Your newly installed prime minister. My, my hunch was the next election is sort of tabled for about two years from now. And I would have put money on the fact that she wouldn't make it for those full two years. You know, that, that she would be toppled probably by Johnson himself. He, he seems to want to stick around in the Commons and have another go at it. It's the Queen thing. You know, the, the Queen thing just changes everything. It, it's such a foundational moment that politically you can't even begin to see the outlines of how that would impact. But my guess is that it will trigger a really traumatized appeal, kind of a bit like what COVID did for Johnson in the early days. People were scared, and so they go towards the leader. I think, I mean, at the moment this morning, you know, her opinion polling was terrible. Even though she's just come in, usually you get a bounce when you first go into Downing Street. And that will do you for a good few months before people realize you're useless. <laughs> if the Queen goes, I would expect that there would be a big wave of support for her, not even in an articulable way, but not even something people could intellectualize, but just they're not going to be in the emotional space of criticizing a prime minister. They're just not. It's just not going to be that. People are going to want reassurance. They're going to feel very unusual and they won't know where to put it. And I guess, and, and it's just a guess because the size of it is too big to be, have any kind of accuracy about your forecast. But my guess is that, that that would actually, I feel kind of cheap saying this, but but I think that would actually lead towards a poll bounce for her. And it might change the fundamental underlying political calculations around her premiership. There's no way to unfuck this thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know what? There is. No, there is. I mean, there, what it requires is a, a serious country that elects serious people who have serious plans for how to fix things. There is nothing that is happening in this country that has to be this way. It's because of populism. You know, over and over, it's because right. you elect people that come up with imaginary enemies, the Europeans or metropolitan liberals or whoever else, to blame on their problems rather than sitting down and doing the hard, granular painstaking policy work that is required to fix national problems like productivity and the economy, like your trading networks, like the health service. It can be done. We've had governments in the past that have done it. And they're the kind of governments that are a bit more boring than, you know, putting a clown suit on a man and ruffling up his hair and going, ho, 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 aren't the foreigners also very funny? It's about sitting down and right. doing the fucking work of politics. And it can be fixed. The country can be fixed. The, and the country will be fixed the moment that it decides that politics is actually a serious business and not just another sitcom that you watch on the television. And I'm going to ask you this again because I can't not ask this again and again. Can UK go back? to Europe. All of your problems, right? Part of the problem is you can't get workers. That's because you're out of the EU. You can't get, you know, fuel. You can't get this. You can't get that. All of these problems, or at least the lion's share, I mean, you certainly have a lot of other problems too, but a lion's share of what you're dealing with right now is caused by Brexit, right? Well, it's, it's exacerbated by Brexit. I mean, lots of them aren't caught. I mean, you know, so the inflation stuff isn't necessarily caused by Brexit, but it's exacerbated. In right. every angle, it's certainly exacerbated by it. At the moment, someone like me, obviously very keen to get back into Europe. I think the way that we look at it, <laughs> the way that I'm looking at it, I, I can't speak for it. I mean, will Europe take you back? Yeah, I mean, they would need to be pretty sure that this wasn't just a passing fad. So, I mean, to me, I think that the thing is you get a Labour government in, for the second term, what you're looking for them to promise is to join the customs union. The customs union is, you know, that joint sort of tariffs organization that you have around Europe. So it's kind of a, you can join that without being in Europe. You're not signing up to freedom of movement and all the immigration stuff. You're not signing up to the political project. You just say, right, we're going to join the customs union. And to someone like me, I think we think you join the customs union and gradually like the remorseless truth of political and trading gravity from there will just take over and bring you right. closer and closer towards your biggest trading partner. But it's sort of, you, you're probably not going to go full sale, let's join the EU in sort of seven years time. You're going to say, let's do the customs union. And then you kind of let political reality take over after that. You are in a situation which America is in to a lesser degree, which is you have a tight labor market, you need workers. All of this can be solved by immigration. I mean, you have it worse because you're smaller and you need more, you know, but you ultimately the same problem in the States. I mean, does anyone ever go like, oh, immigration could solve this problem or, or we're just going to 
completely not do that. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, the funny thing is that uh, the extent of immigration hasn't fallen since Brexit. It just changed location. So oh, because, because they know, because ultimately when you get past all the political rhetoric and you go and sit in Downing Street, or you sit in the cabinet office, you sit in the civil service, they know that you need the immigrants. So as soon as you lose European immigration, sort of young French, young Spanish, young Poles, young Czechs coming over, it shifts over and you start seeing a rise in um, typically Asian immigration, you know, India, Pakistan. So on some level, that's well understood. On a basic economic level, you need it. The debate is pretty much cut in sort of culture war lines publicly of, you know, left-wing, liberal, metropolitan saying, yes, we like immigration and sort of towns, especially in the North and Midlands, being more hostile. However, we've now seen for a, a sustained period an increase in support for immigration and recognition of the benefits that it brings. That was from before Brexit. It was about three or four years before Brexit that started. And it's continuing now. At the moment, there are more people that will respond to persistent opinion polls saying that immigration brings benefits to Britain than those who think that it damages Britain. Now, that's unusual. We didn't have that in the 90s. We didn't have that in the noughties. It was always much more popular to condemn immigration. And that's probably a demographic shift. That's probably just that there's, you know, more older people dying, more younger people coming online as voters. They tend to hold much more liberal views. But also they closed Heathrow because they didn't have anyone to unload the bags. Every single part of the country is is absolutely falling apart. And in many cases, that is labor shortages or skills shortages. You can't pin all of it on immigration, but in lots of cases, it is that. But the deep, the thing that gives you most satisfaction, the thing that gives most hope for the future of the country isn't even about the news right now. It's basically that younger people hold different views on immigration. They hold different views on an open society. They are coming online now, electorally, in really significant numbers and fundamentally changing some of the terms of that debate. Let us pray. Thank you so much, Jesse. has now just texted me, we are way over. I didn't even get the dragon face. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Bonnie. See you soon. Douglas Rushkoff is the author of Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. So, Douglas, you wrote this article years ago that I paid you the compliment of. I think it's the article I've shared the most about your experience talking to some very rich people about the quote-unquote event. Can you explain to us what that is and why they were so concerned about it? It's weird. I mean, you know, I'm a a media theorist, kind of tech thinker guy, so I get often, you know, mistaken for a futurist and invited (laughs) to try to help digital type people and investors basically choose what to invest in. It's not what I enjoy doing, but if they pay enough, I go and do it. You know, so they offered a ton of money. Like I calculated one third of my professor salary at CUNY to go out and do a talk about the digital future. Oh, wow. At some desert resort. I usually try not to do these. I want to be a good, you know, anarcho-syndicalist, radical occupy person and not give secrets to the evil side, but screw it. Money talks and so do I. So I went and did this thing. Tell us where it was. I can't tell you exactly because I don't want them to come after me. It was out in the desert at this crazy resort that actually somebody emailed me who identified it from my description. It's like got these weird like pavilions nestled into the rocks of this big place. It's like three hours from the airport. Although when I got there, like right down the highway from it, there's this municipal airfield where all these G5s and... Oh, so I know where this is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah. think you set this to me as a vacation. Suggestion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where this is. Matt Greenfield says it's too expensive, but I know where it is. Yeah. They have like hot tubs in every room and yeah, well, these guys could afford it. So I went there and I thought they were taking me to the talk, but I was in the green room waiting to get mic'd up and they brought these five guys in. And they were five. Well, three of them were definitely billionaires. Two of them, I think, are billionaires. But I couldn't find them on any lists later. And they started peppering me with these questions. First, it was the typical questions, you know, like uh, the augmented reality or virtual reality, Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, uh, what's going to happen? And then it was Alaska or New Zealand. And they spent the whole really majority of their hour with me asking me things like, how do we maintain control of our security force after the event? 
right? The, the pandemic or nuclear disaster or climate change or whatever it is that, you know, renders civilization you know, <laughs> obsolete right. and they've got to survive in their, on their uh, water world seasteading pontoons. <laughs> right. Amazing. It was crazy. This was pre-pandemic though, right? This was pre-pandemic, right? So I could really, I still was able to laugh entirely at them. Right. right. <laughs> They were crazy. <laughs> Over the next few years, I realized I too am one of them. You know, thinking about installing an Amazon doorbell or something to keep out the riffraff while they drop their, you know, Grubhub and DoorDash at my door, and I spray it with 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 uh, Clorox and bring it in. But no, but these guys. I mean, they were pathetic. I really, honestly, for most of the time, I thought this was a game. I thought that they were going to just, like, the walls were going to drop and they were going to, you know, candid camera or something. And right. This was a, yeah, I'm punked. Your Ashton Kutcher is going to come out. <laughs> but they didn't. And, and maybe it's partly, you know, on the one hand, I was so sad to think, here is the richest, most powerful people I've ever been in a room with, and they feel utterly incapable of influencing the future. You know, that the best thing they could do is... Hide. Hide, right, is accept the inevitable catastrophe of their own making and try to earn enough money to escape it, you know? Right. Or what I came to believe, and especially during COVID, was, no, this isn't the disaster for them. This is a fantasy. This is a wish fulfillment. This is mm. why they've been living the way they are. This mm. is why they want to go to Mars and virtual reality and build their tech. They're afraid of women. They're afraid of nature. They're afraid of us. And they want an excuse to abandon ship. Wow. That's really interesting. You think some of this is like, not to get too psychological here, but that this is people experiencing guilt. Them? Yes. Like they know what they've done. And so they're convinced that it will come back at them. Well, interestingly, you know, I never talked about this, but they also mentioned a few times, I mean, they're a little afraid of AI and stuff. Mm. And yeah. they were talking about Terminator-like scenarios that right. the robots and the AIs are going to come after them because we've, you know, been mean to them. And I'm like, do you really think that's what that's what's <laughs> going? You know, that maybe these movies about robots coming back because we enslave them could that be sort of white Western tech bro culture's way of wrestling with the legacy of? slavery maybe and <laughs> right so <laughs> no but i mean it's clearly there's all sorts of weird issues here that are coming back if that makes any sense yes i do think so i mean the way i've normally been framing it is you know that these tech bros are stuck in a mindset that they think they can build enough technology to you know to escape from the externalized harm that they can stay right. one step ahead like that like the epson executive who would actually make a decision to have all their printers break after a certain number of pages so people need mm. to throw them out and buy new ones that that guy's thinking he's earning enough money in that transaction to insulate himself from the damage he's creating by throwing printers on on waste heaps but but I think I, I think you're right that there's also this kind of not original sin but all of the guilt of what they've been doing over these years, manipulating people, destroying the environment and all right that it's not necessarily, just that they want to insulate themselves from it, but that they have an outsized fear. In some ways, they have more fear of this stuff than you and I do. Yeah. If the event has happened, right? Like, we've had the event, yeah, right? Know. We had a massive pandemic. It killed a million people. It brought the uh, the average lifespan down two years. Like, we had it. It happened. I mean, there may be more, there may be worse, but, like, we've lived through it. So I'm curious to know, how do you think, and again, I know this happened before the pandemic, but I'm curious, how do you think this changes their calculus. I think their calculus changed around the time Trump got elected. You know, that's when we see the tech bros suddenly wake up and go, oh, you know, it's social dilemma. Maybe social media is bad for people. Oh, oh, right. you know, and, uh, we're going to, you know, keep all our stock in Facebook and Google and all, but we're going to make movies on Netflix about how sorry we are. Right. <laughs> Good luck with that. You know, it's like they're never going to divest. It's like they're always going to keep one foot in there. I th honestly think it was Trump on the one hand, Zika, remember 
the Zika mm-hmm. right. Zika oh, thing. I remember that. That was part of what was getting them concerned. So a lot of them, right around the time I did the thing, they were all supposed to be going down to the um, Brazil Olympics, and they all had to cancel their things. And part of this, the reason I did this thing was I think I was supposed to go down originally down, you know, with them to like Brazil or something. It was one and one of those kind of things. So they were aware, you know, the the, the flames that touched their Malibu houses, and it's like, right. huh, it's getting a little hot under the collar. But yeah. Also, these were, if there's such a thing, these were kind of low-level billionaires who'd been reading about Peter Thiel and seasteading and reading about <laughs> Musk and Bezos with their rocket ships. And they were kind of thinking, huh, what are we going to do? The only reason they call someone like me is because they think I might understand how Thiel and Musk are thinking better than they are. Mm. I asked them, I said, oh, don't you guys build rocket ships and stuff? Can't you just get out of right. here? And they were like, oh no, we're we're low-level billionaires. You know, the, <laughs> the best we can do is like try to get a seat on one of Brands flights, but we can't do it ourselves. So they're in that weird in-between place where they're rich enough to be evil, but not quite rich enough to get off the planet. To be really (laughs) evil. Yeah. That's amazing. So Douglas, obviously after this, you wrote that article many years ago, but now you have a book about it. Many, many by today's standards. It's four years ago, I guess, but I guess that's many by uh, the three-day news cycle (laughs) standards. Four million blog years, as we used to say. Exactly. Early Trump era. Yeah. So where did you get to with this book that you just wrote about this? Well, it was weird. You know, I left that thing kind of depressed, first thinking. Shocked. (laughs) Yeah. That these are the richest, most powerful people I've ever been with in my life. And they are less powerful than I am. They, They feel, you know, utterly impotent to do anything. And then more I thought about it, the more funny they seemed to me. And I started to look back at my own kind of career as a, as a, thinker, philosopher, and the people I've engaged with who I've been so intimidated by. And all of them started to seem the same to me. And I came up with this sort of, you know, concept, I call it the mindset, which is this sort of Silicon Valley belief that humanity is a problem to be solved with technology and that they could somehow, you know, make a car that could drive fast enough to escape from their own exhaust. You know, <laughs> right. you know and, and, and it yeah. just doesn't make sense. I remember really when I was like eight or nine years old, we used to have those air conditioners that go in the windows of our little house in Queens. And I went outside and I felt all the hot air blowing from the air conditioner. And I remember going to my dad and saying, wait a minute, aren't we just making the world hotter with the air conditioner? So we're going to need... Turns out, yes. It turns out, yes! (laughs) (laughs) So the seven-year-old got it. But these guys kind of don't, that they can't get get away from it. What I did was I kind of went on this journey to understand where did this mindset really come from? And it turns out it's a really old sort of dominator mindset of it's based in, in partly in a kind of atheistic scientism and a techno-solutionism and these kind of adherence to the biases of, of digital code and understanding human relationships purely as market phenomena and and overall this kind of deep fear of women and nature. I mean, I went all the way back to really Francis Bacon, who's kind of the founder of empirical science. And this great quote, the Royal Academy of Sciences uses and attributes to him, where he says that empirical science will allow us to take nature by the forelock, hold her down and submit her to our will. Yikes! And instantly what I think of is, oh, Jeffrey Epstein, right? (laughs) I'm going to find a lot of scientists. And then I start thinking, oh, you know, I was once at a party with Jeffrey Epstein at, of course, John Brockman's apartment, where I got into an argument as, again, a young, intimidated, you know, I was the tech kid that they let in these rooms because it was like me and Jason Calacanis knew about, you know, technology. So we got invited to- Well, Brockman was like obsessed with technology too and writers. Right, and rightly so. It was the new thing. So I'm there at this party with Richard Dawkins, who's talking about memes and mm-hmm. how human beings are just, it was really awful. He kind of described human beings almost like cassette players, that we just get run by various memes. We're like, we're like running meme- mimetic software and we're not really conscious and there's nothing really going, like, move on, nothing, nothing to see here, move on along. Right. And I was arguing that no human beings, we're kind of weird and quirky and special. There's something about us. Maybe there's a, a, a spirit or soul or something that maybe consciousness precedes matter. When, and they look at me like I'm him and the scientists, like I'm crazy. And eventually they dismiss me. They say, oh, Rushkoff, you're just a moralist. 
sound like a moral. Okay. And they're like, I'm just not immoral. I'm not immoral. I'm not amoral. And, you know, I've read my Wittgenstein, you know, and whatever. I know that there's other meaning systems, that, that scientism is one meaning system, and it has the assumption of an evid- that we live in an evidence-based reality. And I mean, scientism can only prove itself, finally. And they call me a moralist, but now, 20, 30 years later, who is it pictured, you know, that you see on Twitter on Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express heading to the right. TED conference? It's Dawkins and the same scientists. That's what happens because their belief that human beings are nothing but carriers of genes dovetails perfectly with Jeffrey Epstein's desire to have, you know, giant islands and dormitories for teenage girls to host his his fetuses, you know? Yeah. It's like so, so much of that sci-fi stuff is actually what they think. It's where they got their education, a lot of these people. I mean, especially the tech bros, they have a good idea when they're a freshman in college and they get plucked by, you know, Peter Thiel or Sequoia Capital before they've taken economics, before they've taken ethics or philosophy or history. So you get a child, you know, a child brain with, they don't even have the ganglionic, you know, the, the myelin sheaths aren't developed over their frontal lobe. They're pulled from college and they, they, you know, Peter Thiel becomes, you know, their new parent figure. So, of course, they're crazy. Of course, you end up, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg, you know, one of the richest men in the world, trying to be like Augustus Caesar and copying his haircut. I mean, I'm glad it's Augustus and not Caligula, <laughs> right? Right. Is that really what it is? Is that why he has that terrible haircut? That is why it's to look, look at the things. He, he's got pictures of himself with the statue oh, of Augustus. That's what he wants to be because Augustus Caesar built all these, you know, all this infrastructure in Rome. He was a great dictator, but he was a dictator all the same, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's very insane. Like, read the rest of the story, please. Take a, one oh, course, geez. one good course. Christ. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fucking brutal. Yeah, it's like child mind. It's child mind. And then when you combine that with the fact that wealth, now we know wealth erodes empathy, that billionaires, it turns out, their brains change. They don't identify. Wait, stop. Neither Jesse nor I have heard anything about this. I hadn't either. No, there's studies now. They like shove billionaires in MRI machines. And what they find <laughs> out is that that when you reach a certain level of wealth, your empathy begins to erode. That the, the neuroscientists who studied it said that billionaires, they don't identify with the pain or emotions of others. And it's, they, their brains show evidence that they've, they have damaged frontal lobes as if they've had head trauma. And wow. it's hard to know the cause and effect, right? But apparently it doesn't happen till after, you know, that, that it deteriorates after the wealth. It's not that they're sociopaths before, even if they, even if they might be. But I think what it comes from partly is the guilt, you know, that if you're going to, try to win in the way that they understand winning, it means leaving the others behind. I mean, every one of these businesses, all these technologies, they're all based on what business people call an exit strategy, you know, which means that you leave someone else holding the bag and you get out with the money. And every kid, every billionaire, this is what they do. They might have a good idea when they're a freshman in college for a new technology that's going to connect people with cab drivers or people with each other or this with that. They take a few million dollars from venture capitalists and then they're asked to pivot towards something else that's entirely less generous to its users and workers and entirely more extractive. So then you have, if everything you're building, if all of the technologies we're using are based on some exit strategy or another, eventually you get to the point where you think, I need an exit strategy from this whole thing. And that's where they're at. Wow. So interesting. Shocking to me. And then when you see how it dovetails, not just with old science, and this is where it got really scary, but it dovetails with like Bannon and accelerationism and, you know, the new alt-right. Wait, talk about that more too. Well, it sort of, it works in two ways. And I was trying to make a schematic to make it really simple to be able to explain it. But on the one hand, the QAnon people and conspiracy theorists, they're the only ones who really take the tech bros 
at their word, right? right? You've got a lot of well-meaning neoliberal tech bros who go to Burning Man and do some ayahuasca and come back and go, <laughs> oh, climate change, we've destroyed the world. I've got a software stack for that, right? I've got right. my new techno solutionist eco-village plan, like Sin right, City, right, right. as long as we clear-cut this forest and you know wipe away <laughs> right. all of Europe, I can plant my seed and grow my new civilization. You know, yeah. at least Musk is going to do it on Mars. You know, God bless. <laughs> yeah, but they're crazy. Right, it's like the great reset that comes out of um, Davos and the World Economic Forum that we're going to put all of the you know all of the world on a blockchain and monitor pollution and save the world with these new computers. It's all fakakta, right? This doesn't work. No, it it doesn't work. It's it, it works as well as Bitcoin works. It's not it's not a thing. But the people who believe it are the conspiracy. They go, oh my God, you know, they've got nanobots and Bitcoins and cryptos that are going to track everything and do, and you know, and wear watches and implants. So they believe it. And of course, they're going to think of it as, as this awful conspiracy theory that they have to fight. And then on the other hand, you've got guys like Steve Bannon or even Musk who go, oh, look, these people believe this stuff. I can leverage this energy. And, you know, two parts Gamergate, three part conspiracy theorist and one part QAnon is going to yield me my army of meme troll, angry mm, Jan right. six conspiracy theorists who are going to bring this thing down and right. bring this thing down is the operative phrase there. So you've got Bannon who is what's called an accelerationist. So right. are these tech billionaires. It's an idea that came from a science fiction novel, which is that right. you accelerate technology and society fast enough to tear it down so that you can start again. And lo and behold, you've got guys talking about game B, right? Game B right. is like, we're living in game A, but they're going to do, don't worry, we're going to just reboot, control, alt, delete human civilization and that's reboot the system. It's yikes. like, no, that's not a, that's not a coherent theory of change. Thank you so much, Doug. Please come back soon. Andy Levy. Molly Dungfest. Who is your fuck that guy? My fuck that guy is a guy who just won't go. He just won't go away. And he really, really needs to. He's the former governor of the great, the tremendous state of New York. Who could that be? And his name is Andrew Cuomo. As activist DeRay shared on Twitter during the week, he has an ad running on Facebook. Facebook that is paid for by friends of Andrew Cuomo, which has to be a lie because he don't have friends. Why does he have ads going? Well, that's the thing is, so it's a big ad and it's got a picture of, of Andrew sitting there and, and it says next to it, Cuomo's resignation is hashtag me too excess, not success. And and then the copy itself that is under Andrew Cuomo's name above the ad says the story about Governor Cuomo is one of political grudges and a Me Too driven rush to judgment. And then it links to a New York Daily News story, which I assume. Oh, yes. I yeah. An editorial was written by an actual pile of steaming shit. Lindsay Boylenbaugh was one of Cuomo's first accusers. Years ago, by the way, and she yes, got destroyed yes. for it. She got absolutely destroyed for it, and good for her. She's still out there fighting. But she pointed out that there's some, you know, New York state law that allows Cuomo to use, like, campaign funds and stuff or whatever he has from when he was governor to run these ads, to pay for these ads. It's absolutely gross. Like, just, again, just go away. You and your dumb brother, between the two of them, they don't have a single ethic. They both just need to go away, and, and they both refuse to go away, and we're stuck with them, and we're stuck with Chris Cuomo doing some show on, I guess, Dan Abrams' network called News Nation. I don't, and Andrew Cuomo trying somehow to salvage a reputation that in a sane world would be beyond repair. And it just made me, it makes me realize, like we lost something when we, when we stopped exiling people. I'm anti-death penalty, but I do think island exile <laughs> is sort of the way to go for some people. And I think we need to bring that back. I think we need a, a serious discussion about bringing exile back to the U.S. criminal code. But until then, I am just going to continually and continuously say, fuck that guy. Do you want to know who my fuck that guy is? Yes, please. 
His name is Ronanon. He is from the great state of Wisconsin. He sucks. And he <laughs> this morning, the very narrowly divided Senate is trying, the few sane Republicans are trying desperately to codify same-sex marriage before the end of the term because they're really worried as well, I think we all are, that the Supreme Court, which is now 80% Republican, it's not 80% Republican, it's six Republicans and three normal justices left, that they are going to go after same-sex marriage just like they went after Roe. It seems very likely that that is a possibility. And so a few sane Republicans are trying to codify same-sex marriage, Oberfield, and Ron John, Ron Anon, just wants us to know that he believes that the same-sex marriage was wrongly decided, and he is, you know, not going to support the codification, not that he would have anyway. But I just want to point out, like, and I really do think Ron Anon sucks, and he's constantly pushing uh, anti-vax conspiracy theories, lots of stupid crap, but he also is, he's running in a swing state. Like, he's not running in Mississippi. Like, he is running in a very purple state with a Democratic governor, and it's just interesting to me that he thinks that he can pull that. I also continue to wonder, is he just stupid or evil? I think it's both. Yeah, I mean, the good news is he's down in the polls, but I'm told by a, by a reliable source that he was also down in the polls in his last race. Is that correct, Molly? <laughs> yes, against Russ Feingold. No, I mean, look, yes. and you know, the truth is, I mean, if we've seen anything from the last six races after Roe, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we've seen that the polling, there's a lot of... We, we really don't know how to poll. So we'll see, right? We will see indeed, Molly. <laughs> On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.